If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today we have as our guest, Zach Beach, who is an internationally renowned yoga teacher, a best-selling author, poet, love coach, and the founder of the Heart Center Love School. Zach also leads Power of Love retreats, heart-opening workshops, and transformational teacher trainings, and is also a popular speaker at conferences and college campuses. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks so much, Mati. Happy to be here. So glad to have you. Um, I also want to mention that, Zach, one of the transformational um, workshops that Zach leads is the Learn to Love series based in Oakland, California, where I live. And I will be speaking at one of his events this coming Monday, May 21st, and it's called Open Relationships, Love at Any Age. And I will be speaking about midlife polyamory on a panel of people that will be talking about polyamory at all different ages. So I'm really looking forward to working with you at your event on Monday, Zach. That'll be really fun. I've been to a couple of your other events there. So one uh, as part of your Learn to Love series. So maybe you could start by telling us, um, we're going to have a love fest tonight because I'm all about love, you're all about (laughs) love. So how did you get into being a love coach and a love teacher and, you know, all all the stuff that you do about love? How How did that happen in your life? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I this wasn't always my career choice, living a path of love. Um, but about almost a decade ago, I was actually working as an engineer for biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And believe wow. it or not, but looking at a computer and sitting in a cubicle all day did not make me very happy. <laughs> and I decided that life is too short not to do what you love. And when I le- really looked within and I looked into my own heart, I realized that what I loved was love. And mm. so I quit my job and I decided to uh, completely devote myself to love and to see my purpose in the world as helping others uh, bring more love into their lives and deepen the intimacy in all of their relationships. And as I'm sure you've discovered, and many people have discovered, is that there's many ways to uh, live a life of love. There's many things one can love in life, and then there's many ways one can walk the path of love. Uh, So for me, my work in the world, I think of it as being on three levels. The first is is the level of the body. So I get to teach yoga every day, and I get to tell people to open up their hearts every day. On the level of the Mm. heart, I uh, write poetry and do spoken word performances uh, all around the town. And then on the level of the mind, I write and I research, and then I started the Heart Center Love School, which is an organization designed to help the world uh, bring more love, and which is where Learn to Love comes from. Awesome. 
And so tell us a little bit about your background. Did you come from a loving family or did you have to teach yourself how to engage in a healthy love relationships? You know, I am extraordinarily lucky. Um, I recently published The Seven Lessons of Love, which we'll talk about. And one of the first people I acknowledge at the very end is my own mother. And we actually Mm -hmm. hang out on Sunday for Mother's Day. And I feel Mm -hmm. actually extraordinarily lucky to have grown up uh, in a loving family. And although I didn't know at the time... My parents said that when they started have to have children, they set the intention to have a household that had unconditional love. Mm. And, of course, they didn't use these terms when they were talking to me, uh, but it was quite clear that no matter what I did or who I turned out to be, that no matter what, my parents would love me. Mm. And in the book that I wrote, I wrote this idea that we spend the first uh, formative years of our life absorbing love uh, from the people around us and the rest of our lives giving it away. And I feel like very much that has been my path as I was very fortunate uh, to receive uh, a lot of love as a child. And now I see my life purpose as giving that love away. Now I also say that I didn't have a perfect childhood because, of course, perfect childhoods don't exist because our parents are just as much imperfect beings trying their best, making up things as they go along, along the way. However, I do feel quite fortunate and lucky to have the upbringing that I did. Yes, you are fortunate. And so what about people who didn't have um, love that they could absorb and then give away if they never really hmm. got it. Do you find that they're kind of always seeking that? And is there a way that they can um, get filled up so they can eventually give it away in their adult years? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not hopeless. Uh, every human being is capable of love. Every human being is capable of having a loving relationship uh, that has the intimacy and the sexual uh, fulfillment that they want and desire and people that didn't quite receive the love that maybe they wanted or deserved as children can absolutely live uh, a life of love for the rest of their lives. It just might require some level of intentional effort. Um, We all have negative patterns, negative conditionings from when we grew up, whether it was given to us through society or culture or teachers or our parents or anyone, you know, who are around us. We absorb all sorts of messages around love, sexuality. Sometimes these messages serve us. Sometimes uh, they do not. And as adults, we look at, we, our task is really to examine all the obstacles that prevent us from loving others, including what we were or were not taught as children. And once we undo those obstacles, then the love just flows from our heart. So there's hope for everyone. Human beings are capable of extraordinary transformations, uh, including those who maybe did not have the childhoods that they deserved. Mm-hmm. Do you find that through your um, yoga teaching that that helps people um, connect more with the natural vibration of love in their bodies? Absolutely. Um, you know, we say that the heart is the place of love for a reason, because as much as we love the mind and how useful the mind is, and we live in a very cognitive-centric society where knowledge has brought us extraordinary, you know, scientific advancements, 
um, our source of love, of empathy, of understanding, and really of connection to others absolutely lies in the heart. And, you know, for a lot of people, yoga is just a workout, which is awesome because workouts are good for you and, and they make you feel good and maybe you feel better about your body when it's in shape. Um, but to me, yoga really just offers a whole number of tools for personal transformation and as well as really just getting in touch with a person, with your own body and your own heart. So for me, mm -hmm. meditation is under the realm of yoga, just as eating well and taking care of your body is under the umbrella of yoga. So by loving oneself, getting in touch with oneself, one's own heart, one's own uh, body absolutely can help somebody bring more love into their lives. Beautiful. And so you're, you say you're a best-selling author. Is that is The Seven Lessons of Love? Um, is that your, your book, or have, do you have more than one book? Um, that's my first written book. I have a poetry collection. As I mentioned, I love to write poetry, mm -hmm. which is another gateway to the heart. Um, that poetry collection is called Drinking Roses on Sunday. I published it about f maybe five years ago. And I didn't mm -hmm. reach, you know, the number one bestseller or anything, but it still holds a special place in my heart. Um, but Seven Lessons of Love recently reached uh, number one on Amazon in a number of categories, and I'm really happy with how the book turned out and also the response I've been getting from folks and how it's really shifted the perspective. Congratulations. So what are the Seven Lessons of Love? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I don't want to give everything away, but I'll tell you this. To me, the seven lessons of love are truth behind the mystery of love. It's so often and easily love is described as, as this great, ineffable, uh, this mystery that we could never understand, that we just fall into it without any of our control. Um, but really the seven lessons of love, the culmination of my own decade of research into the heart, into this this strange and powerful and amazing and ecstatic force of love. So I think of seven lessons of love as really fundamental principles, fundamental truths about love that we can all use and we can all apply to bring into our lives, into our relationships, to better love ourselves and each other and the world. Mm -hmm. So I really hope you... my goal with this book was to completely uh, change somebody's life. I wanted somebody to finish the book and then look out the window and realize that their entire life perspective has changed and their heart has never been so full. Mm, and are you getting some reviews saying that uh, that, that, had, that goal has been accomplished? Yeah, I've definitely gotten some, even... You know, the first people I marketed it to was my friends, and so I'll even just get, like, a Facebook message from a friend, and it'll say, thank you so much. There's so many synchronicities. Um, you know, we're all, as human beings, we need love. We want love. We appreciate it. We sing of love in our songs and tell of it in our stories, and I often find that underneath almost all the activities that we, that we do for ourselves is really a seeking and a yearning for love, and so we're all on our own love path as human beings. And I find when people read the book, there's so much that they resonate with um, in terms of what, they're, what they've been trying to do and what they're trying to do and the struggles that we, they find in, in their relationships. Um, you know, a love story is universal. And we, all, we are all living our own love stories as best we can. 
And it, sometimes it's scary, sometimes it's frightening, sometimes it's ecstatic. And through all that, I really wanted the seven lessons of love to be some guiding principles along this path for those that are maybe disheartened. Um, the tagline for the book is heart wisdom for troubling times. Now troubling times mm. could be maybe you just had a breakup and this is the worst time in your life and you've sworn off love forever. Or maybe troubling mm-hmm. times is when you're in your relationship and you thought that you were deeply and madly in love and you had found the one. And then now you reach a level of conflict that it seems like, um, the relationship might need to end. And of course the troubling times that we live in today. Um, it's amazing. You Politically. Know, we turn on the news, what, what you guys hear about, you know, and really this is heart wisdom for all of those things. Great. Fabulous. Um, so I read um, one of your posts where you talked about po- how polyamory can save the world. And it's a little bit of a controversial, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of a controversial Uh, framing of polyamory because I've gotten some criticism for the name of my radio show leading edge love said that it implies that monogamy is not leading edge, that it's lesser than in some way. And similarly, Mm. when you say polyamory can save the world, it's like saying people who choose monogamy um, are, you know, stuck in an old world model or something. So taking into account that, there's some sensitivity around that. How can polyamory save the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You you know, um, I totally hear the, the the potential criticism because there is a lot of criticism of there's a certain segment of like the poly population who will say that like polyamory is the more evolved, it's the better version of being in relationships and we should all just open up our relationships and whatnot. But I think both you and me are probably in the same camp uh, that, you know, polyamory is not necessarily for everyone. And I might, in terms of how it can save the world, I might view it as a kind of technology, you know, kind of like solar panels. Like I could say solar mm-hmm. panels could save the world because they could, you know, they could do all these good things that we could do if we all just got our energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of how it can save the world, um, what I mean, there's, a, there's a two fundamental ways that that can happen. One is by restructuring our intimate relationships. So why in the world does the world even need saving? And to me, the world needs saving because we're in a terrible loneliness epidemic. And people Mm -hmm. are more lonely than they've ever been before. In history, people interact less uh, face-to-face and less socially. Um, And it's really, it's sorrowful to see such a level of disconnection in society. And although we, in theory, have devices in our pocket and computers that connect us to anyone else in the world, when you actually measure and do research into people's subjective feeling of loneliness, uh, we find the rates to be rising. So it's like, what are we going to do about this? And what's funny is I love to read, you know, academic research and books by academic authors. And so many new books come out and they're like, we need to rethink our relationships. We need to rethink our social structures. We need to create new paradigms of social relating so that everyone can feel a connection or a sense of connection and belonging in their lives. And then they just leave it at that. Like they don't mention like any possible uh, solutions forward. And I'm kind of like racking my brain a little bit. Like we have that paradigm. We have the technology. We have the ability. And that ability is, of course, 
moving from a love model that says you can only be in love and have love with one person at one time and exploding that and to look at all the myriad of ways that we can love other people in our lives in an intimate way. Mm-hmm. And through that, we can help heal our society by just simply creating more connection in the world. I know lots of people, when I tell them that I, I'm into love and I work in the field of love, a lot of people say um, something along the lines of like, oh, I wish I had love in my life, but I haven't been in a relationship in like two, three years. And I point out that we have all a total myriad of loving relationships that support us on a day-to-day basis. But the love, the monogamous love model takes all the, that, those beautiful loving relationships we can have. We can have friendship love, brotherly love, and we can be in love and love uh, multiple ways, and it reduces it to just one relationship. So mm-hmm. when we look at the loneliness epidemic and the increasing disconnection that we have in society, uh, polyamory, open relationships, swinging, relationship anarchy, all of these uh, models create a path forward in, term, in, in healing that disconnection. So that's right, the yeah, one thinking... way polyamory can save the world. And the other way that polyamory can save the world is that polyamory also offers, has so many tools um, that any relationship can use. And, you know, one thing I love about the polyamory community is how earnest everyone is in trying their absolute best to make it work. Mm-hmm. And you can read all these books. You know, most poly people have like, oh, yeah, have you read Ethical Slat? Have you have you heard of More Than Two? It's the it's the new it's the new book and opening up. I don't know many monogamous uh, couples and relationships that go to conferences every other weekend and are reading the latest <laughs> books and podcasts. And so. And then, so in that, not only does like the polyamorous communities have a whole knowledge base of how to operate in relationships, how to manage jealousy, how to to take responsibility for one's emotions, and the poly communities end up being a little insular, so these tools don't quite get, you know, to the general population. Um, But anybody can use these tools. You can be in a monogamous relationship and jealousy is going to come up and it's going to help to have tools to deal with your jealousy. So polyamory not only can heal the disconnection in society, but also give us the tools to do it. So sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. No, no, that's okay. I appreciate all that you said. I had so many different thoughts. Um, I was going to say something about relationship anarchy because um, there are so many different kinds of love relationships that you can have in every single couple or triad or group that I coach does non-monogamy in their own unique way. There's no one way of doing it. And the conversation is so complex for each Mm -hmm. person or group of people that I work with because they all have their different needs and desires and images and pictures of what the relationship will look like. And you don't see monogamous couples doing that as often until they're in crisis. And then they finally, you know, usually the woman drags (laughs) the man into therapy (laughs) And they're on the verge of breaking up, and sometimes they can make it. But, yeah, you're right. Um, Non-monogamous people start reading books right off the bat before they even start, usually. (laughs) Right. And that's the lovely thing about it. Like, um, 
you know, they say there's as many ways to do polyamory as there are people. And so every relationship that you go into ends up being a negotiation. And in mm-hmm. that, people are open up. They talk about their wants. They talk about their needs. They talk about their desires. And for a lot of monogamous people, there isn't even that conversation. Um, people just, like, assume like, all these things are happening. So we're exclusive now, and we're going, you know, up what we call the relationship escalator that we all know about. So clearly we don't have to talk about uh, any of these things. And, of course, that lack mm-hmm. of communication can spell uh, problems for the relationship later on. Right. And then the other thing I wanted to interject was um, when you're talking about how polyamory can save the world, there was an article that came out recently about how in India and China, because of their population control policies from the past, you know, decades, there are now, I guess, I think under the age of 30 or something, there's twice as many men as women. Um, now, uh, setting aside that Twice. this is totally heteronormative, yeah. So just se- setting aside wow. that this is totally he- heteronormative, I read the article and I went, two husbands for every woman, duh. <laughs> but, you know, nobody talks about that. I've never even mentioned. <laughs> this article was about what a crisis it is and what are we going to do and oh my god and I'm like, uh, two husbands would be great. What woman wouldn't want a couple of husbands? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a good point. It reminds me of a couple of things. One, it reminds me of, you know, a lot of academics kind of ask the question, like, how did homosexual and lesbian relationships, like, evolve? You know, if our species evolved to procreate with one another, um, then how in the world did, you know, uh, say homosexual people, like, continue in the propagation of the species? And while we, we don't quite know that the, uh, we don't quite have a 100% answer, but there are many theories along the lines of, well, we evolved for same-sex partnerships whenever there was an imbalance uh, in the genders. Mm-hmm. Or another similar mm-hmm. theory is um, that just when same-sex people like each other, that helps everyone. Um, so it creates a like a sense of cohesion as the whole. And mm-hmm. you're right. I remember reading, I mean, like China has about a billion people and they're mm-hmm. also, you know, there's also, they also have some issue, you know, with uh, testing the gender of the baby before it's born. And then if it's female, it ends up getting aborted. And so even like a 1% difference in the other direction ends up being like 30 million people. Uh-huh. And so then, you, so I also heard the same thing that there's like 30 more uh, million men than there are women, and then it's like, well, yeah, that's what happens if like the structure of society requires you to pair up every single man with every single woman, and whatever the difference mm-hmm. is, and those people are left with a life of singlehood. Mm-hmm. But when you break out of this, then you can have whatever configurations you want. So yes, those absolutely that that those 30 million. Uh, you know, single males can tack on to another relationship and you can have as many triads as you want. We have a lot of work to do in the world, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) So what is your best advice for someone who's just entering into the world of open relationships? Uh, Good question. You know, fortunately, whoever's listening to this podcast is already doing it. 
my advice for anyone entering into polyamory, entering into open relationships, is to do your homework. Is um, I kind of think of it like we gain a lot of understanding of how monogamous relationships work through osmosis. Like we watch any movie or we see most parents and couples and we have a general understanding of like how to operate in uh, monogamous relationships. And then when we begin to venture into alternative relationship paradigms, whatever they may be, we have very few role models and very few examples of how those relationships are supposed to be. And as a result, people can feel lost and people can feel like they don't want to do it. They don't know what to do in certain situations. And fortunately, we have a few decades of history of lots of poly folks who have committed an extraordinarily num- uh, high number of mistakes, and then they've learned from their mistakes <laughs> and uh, created a body of wisdom with which to draw uh, from and to help the new generation of people in exploring these alternative uh, relationship paradigms. So, you know, I remember I've been poly for about a decade now. And when I started out, I mean, there was maybe like one or two books, like there was Opening Up and um, Ethical Slut, and there was like one podcast, like Poly Weekly. And, you know, I talked to people that were started like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and they're like, we had nothing. <laughs> we were, you know, mm-hmm. uh, making it up as we go along and trying our best to learn from each other. But fortunately now, anyone entering into relation, uh, open relationships, uh, there's so many resources out there. There's a whole number of books you can look at, uh, podcasts you can listen to, as well as online resources. And there's even a few television shows and movies that show um, what a non-monogamous relationship uh, could potentially look like. So if you're listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, good job. You're on the right track. Um, you're entering into a completely new relationship paradigm that you uh, have very few uh, role models and very little experience with. And the best thing to do is to really learn uh, from others who have already walked the path and have um, some insight and wisdom to be shared. Right, and that's what I was going to say was community is so important because I find mm. when people come, people come to me and they're new, new to open relationships, they are very closeted. Um, they don't want to tell mm-hmm. anybody in their family. They don't want to tell anybody they work with. They don't want their neighbors to know. Oftentimes they won't even let their children know for a long time. And so they're very isolated and they feel like they're this outlaw. <laughs> so... Um, so I try to get them hooked into communities as soon as possible um, so that we have role models. Um, we really need that, that emotional support so that we don't feel like we're trying to do it in isolation. No, I wholeheartedly agree. A community support is so important, and it's also really hard, uh, you know, if you're in, like, middle of nowhere, Missouri, to find anybody mm-hmm. who even resonates with such a lifestyle. But I guarantee you there's people out there who would love to talk to you and help you with whatever problems it is that you're going through. I find one of the worst things, like I almost find one of the worst things like an open or poly person can do is ask a monogamous person for advice. (laughs) (laughs) Because I find like nine times out of 10, that advice is like, 
clearly you shouldn't be in the relationships that you're in. Like the problems that you're mm-hmm. in are inherent to your relationship paradigm and you should break up with boyfriend number two so you can be with boyfriend number one and then everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. So it will definitely help to have, you know, people who have that supportive community. I, I totally agree. Right. Yeah. Or they, or when you ask a monogamous person for advice, they say, you know, why are you, degrading yourself like that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's loads of of misconceptions I find even a lot of people you know I I might even bring up the subject of polyamory and then a person might be like what is that and I'll say oh it's multiple intimate relationships with the knowledge and consent of everyone involved and they say oh I could never do that and I'm mm-hmm. like, you just heard about what it is. And a lot of people have already <laughs> formed formed an opinion and an understanding of it uh, before you even mention it. And mm-hmm. if you're going to talk to somebody about the problems you're encountering, you're just going to get that those, like, sound bites, you know? Yes. And in, in, more than, in the book More Than Two, they talk about if you have the courage to come out to your um, seemingly monogamous friends, you never know when one of them is going to say, oh, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I have this neighbor that needs someone to talk to or, you know, mm. um, or, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken about polyamory at like straight, straight business conferences. You know, I talk about jealousy and, and competitiveness in business. And, you know, the, like you said, the tools that we learn uh, apply to so many different areas, but every time I talk about it in a straight environment, I always have between one and five people pull me aside in the hallway afterwards and secretly, you know, let's duck into this little dark area here so no one can see me. Hey, by the way, I'm in a polyamorous triad, la, 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 la. You know, there's just a lot of closeted people out there, and, and it's refreshing if somebody can have the courage to speak about it, and it gives other people permission to start speaking about it too. No, absolutely. I think you're doing you're doing awesome work in the world, Sumati. And um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, can't come out. You know, they might lose their job, mm-hmm. they might lose custody right. of their kids, and so the more people that can, you know, come out and share their story um, with, you know, because they know that there's no repercussions like yourself, um, the better because some voices Mm -hmm. are silenced because they can't, they can't speak in in this current environment. And, you know, the more people that feel that have the ability to speak out, the better. Yeah. And we are very blessed where we live, where, uh, you know, many people in our, community of sex positive people have to kind of be apologetic if they're monogamous. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So if if you're just joining us, you're listening to leading edge love radio, and this is your host Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. We're speaking with Zach Beach, the love coach, and he's also the founder of the heart center love school and leads all kinds of workshop, workshops and transformational trainings um, on the topics of opening our hearts, uh, loving each other unconditionally, and being in connection and community. So, Zach, tell us what you think, why you think loving more than one person is so hard, and why so many 
you know, old pains and triggers come up? Uh, good question. So why is lo- loving more than one person so hard? Um, to me, it's two reasons. One is I remember asking this therapist one time and um, along the lines of, you know, everyone loves love. Like no one, you know, you might not like, you know, even though like the, the, not, not many people, people disagree on like a warm, juicy peach. Like there's people out there that like hate peaches, you know, but pretty much everyone is like in the same boat that like love is this nice thing. You know, 90% of people on this planet are going to get married at some point in their lives. So I was asking this therapist and I was like, so if people love love so much, why don't they love more love? Like, why don't, you know, Mm. if people, everyone universally says that one relationship is an amazing thing to have. So why don't they say two relationships is a really good thing to have? (laughs) And this therapist said, you want to know why uh, people don't want more relationships? Because they're so bad at relationships. (laughs) Mm. and a little tongue-in-cheek um but i know for a lot of people uh a relationship although it is a source of love and connection belonging and acceptance it's also a source of stress it's also a source (laughs) of many problems i remember when i was working in the corporate world and i was talking to a coworker, and he said he was working late and i was like and I just mentioned, hey, you're working pretty late. And he goes, well, yeah, it's better than being at home with the wife. Oh, dear. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. And, you know, for a lot of folks, relationships are something you work on. It's a source of stress. It's kind of a, you know, it can, it can act as a mirror, uh, which can sometimes be really beautiful. But sometimes that mirror shows somebody their own uh, stuff that they need to work through and they don't really want to. Um, but I definitely don't want to blame the individual person for being quote unquote bad at relationships because one of the reasons I started the heart center love school is because love schools by and large don't exist Mm -hmm. and that we don't have many tools, uh, at our disposable at at our disposal of how to have thriving, amazing, uh, intimate relationships. And my vision with the love school is I want people to learn about love just as much as they did chemistry and physics and history and all those things that we learned for the first 18 years of our life, but we never learned a class on forgiveness or communication Mm -hmm. or how to, uh, you know, say goodbye to somebody who's on their deathbed. Like the things that matter most to us in life, the real problems, um, we are largely left on our own and largely expected to perhaps absorb it at some point when we were children about how to love and then, uh, and then apply it later on in life. So Mm -hmm. that's why that's, you know, that's why I think both of us are doing our work in the world to help people along these paths because, you know, we're kind of left out uh, high and dry in terms of uh, being in relationships. There are a few tools and classes out there and we simply just weren't taught uh, the most critical and essential things about relationships. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, uh, you know, loving one person is hard. <laughs> so Stan Tatkin, he's a couples therapist. I'm a big fan of his work. I recently watched a, uh, like a TED Talk or something along those lines. And he's a couples therapist, and he, said, and he works with couples all the time, and he specifically said, 
being with one other person is the hardest thing any human being is ever as ever has to do. Mm-hmm. And part of that is again because we have no tools. But the other part of that is the second reason why loving more than one person is hard is because intimate relationships will absolutely uh, bring up all of our own stuff. And that stuff, Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, is our own childhood wounding, I'll say. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when we come into this planet as children, we're extraordinarily helpless uh, and we need our primary caregivers to give us the food and water and shelter uh, that we need in order to survive. So to a child, uh, am I loved and will I survive are essentially the same question because they need Mm -hmm. somebody to take care of them. And Mm -hmm. so the idea of being unloved of unwanted uh, is rooted deeply in our survival. So, and that continues uh, when we become adults and any trauma, any wounding, any hurt, any pain uh, that we had as a child is going to reoccur in our relationships. Now that's why they're so hard, but that's also why they exist in the first place because our intimate relationships are the place to heal that wounding because we're no longer a helpless child, but we're an adult who now has a supportive and loving partner who hopefully is committed to our own growth. Mm -hmm. And so being with one person, they're going to be a mirror. They're going to show you all your wounding for your growth, and it's going to be really, really hard. And then being with two people or more than one person not only gives you two mirrors, kind of like when you go into the dressing room, but it also adds that uh, additional uh, challenge of envy and jealousy. So... Mm -hmm. In Pali, we say envy is somebody has something that you want, so you have a, you're a millionaire, and I wish I was a millionaire, so I'm envious of you. But then jealousy is the fear that somebody is going to take away something that you have. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you love somebody, and being and being loved and seen is is rooted in these primal fears of being unloved and shame and all these things. And then when you bring more people into the mix, um, the idea that this third party or fourth party is going to steal this source of love and belonging from your life, which, of course, brings even more uh, fear. And so earlier I mentioned how important it is to kind of do your homework um, because I know a lot of people, they open up their relationship and things are going really well, and then they find themselves crying in the fetal position in the bathroom floor, and they were like, <laughs> what, what, what happened? <laughs> and it, that's, those things are going to come up. Um, opening up your relationship is not going to solve the problems in your relationship. And it, and it will show you uh, those fears and insecurities that wounding, um, but for the, because they're there, they they're they're the wound, childhood your childhood wounding that you have is there, and it's going to be with you until you shine light on it, until you heal it, um, and that's going to come up in your relationships, and so that you can move beyond it. So I know for me personally, when I first got into open relationships and polyamory is I feel like I grew more in that like first year than I did at any other point in my life. Um, right. You know, people are like, what are your feelings? What are your needs? And I'm like, what are you talking about? 
I'm feeling that you're a jerk and I need you to leave. (laughs) And, but so much, you know, awareness and self-awareness is needed and necessary. And as a result, once you've grown through that, you know, you end up so much stronger uh, for the better. Mm -hmm. So if you come from a less than functional household, like most of us do, how can you choose an appropriate partner, let alone partners? Um, So many of us have radar for somebody that's just like our screwed up dad or mom, you know, like we we can find Mm -hmm. that person across a crowded room, you know? So how does one break (laughs) that so that they can start choosing somebody who will um, be present with them and do the work that's required to have long-term intimacy? Yeah. So the answer uh, goes a little bit into what we call attachment theory or attachment styles, which is really a robust uh, area of research around what they call the attachment style that we had as a child that uh, happens, that shows up later on in life in our adult relationships. Now, one thing I want to point out, and I'll just say it to the listeners, is I have yet to see much or any research into attachment styles uh, and open relationships polyamory. So I'm actually quite curious if any listener has any resources, any research that shows uh, how, these, how these attachment styles affect our relationships, um, then I'm all, I'm all ears and send that to me. Now, well, from I a more like monogamous – with- go ahead. With one of my one of my guests, Arielle Giaretto, she's a trauma mm-hmm. specialist. Um, we talked mm-hmm. quite a bit about that in the episode with her, so we'll have to collaborate with her on a book. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I want to see it. And now, so the the go to advice, and I'm not the biggest fan, but here's what a lot of like psychologists will say is they'll tell you that there's four types of attachment and they kind of go by different names, but there's secure attachment, which is the one that you want. And then there's anxious attachment, uh, avoidant attachment and disorganized. And they'll say that the best thing you can do is find somebody who's secure and start dating them. (laughs) So there's actually a lovely little book. Yeah, right. There's obviously there's a little book. It's called Attached. It's kind of like the go-to pop side book for attachment theory, and it kind of says that it says like secure people are the best, and they they succeed at everything in life. And if you find yourself anxious and you find yourself avoidant, just find that that's a, a securely attached person, and then their security will just rub off on you, and uh, and then you'll be much better. Now, yes, easier said than done, and in a perfect world, that would be lovely if all the secure people just entered into relationships with the anxious people and then taught them how wonderful (laughs) it was to be secure, because it does take time. Mm -hmm. Um, And now for those of us, you know, many of us might find ourselves already in a five-year relationship with somebody else who is just as anxious as we are, somebody else who is just as avoidant, or it might be in what they call the anxious avoidant dynamic, which uh, is so common uh, to relationships. And for that, there's kind of different routes forward. The idea is that you want um, you want to build security. And I feel like you could do that in three ways. One, you could build security with yourself. 
Two, you could build security with a professional. Or three, you could build security with your partner. So mm-hmm. being part of a lot of spiritual and meditation communities, a lot of, uh, you know, the psychology-inclined uh, teachers will actually call meditation spiritual reparenting. Mm-hmm. And with this idea that, you know, love is getting the attention, the non-judgmental attention from somebody, and guess what? You can do that to yourself. So if you meditate mm-hmm. and you give yourself that loving, non-judgmental, uh, non-reactive, like mindful awareness, then you can literally create uh, some, that sense of security in yourself. So that's one mm-hmm. option. And the other option is with professionals. So a therapist is someone you get to see every single week. And they can be that sort of reparenting, if you will. And, yes, you're paying them. But guess what? Now you have a person in your life with, in your, who's committed to your own growth, your own encouragement, and you get to see every week. And, of course, everybody is unique, and a therapist is going to have some expertise on, on helping you work through whatever specific issues you need to work through. And then the mm-hmm. third person you could build that relationship with and that sense of security is with um, your partner. And the idea being that we all have our own stuff to work through, and ideally we have a loving partner who's committed to working it uh, through, uh, working through, through it with us. So I'm actually mm-hmm. am a big fan of, I mentioned before, Stan Tatkin. He has a book called The Relationship Rx or The Relationship Prescription. He has, he has a whole chapter on secure functioning. And he says, here are some mm-hmm. things that relationships can do in order to build that secure uh, functioning. So, um, yeah, but you do have to build that with, you have to build that up and, um and you can be with the, yourself, your professional, or a partner who also is dedicated mm-hmm. to the same same path and same growth. Beautiful. I like that you said meditation is a form of spiritual reparenting. I think I I did that. I never used that phrase before, but that rings true mm-hmm. for me when I took about five months off and went out into nature in my RV and just spent all this time alone for about five months. And really wow. just broke my attachment to people. Like, I mean, I wasn't completely alone, but, you know, I left my partner at home and said, go do whatever you want. Find as many new lovers as you want. I'm going to be gone. So that, like, broke my dependency on other people. Wow. It allowed me to really align with myself and nature. And I was listening to all kinds of spiritual audios and reading books and really getting clear that I'm whole and complete as I am. So... I think that that is a really helpful tip. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like for you it really worked, and I do firmly believe for a lot of people it will definitely work. Now, there's also a certain segment of people that are just avoidant and avoid commitment, avoid connection, and actually them going off doing things by themselves is a way of running away you know, from the issues. So yeah, that's a really um, good point. Cause I think that I had been more anxious attachment style. And then after that mm-hmm. period, I have become more, um, uh, what's the other one? The opposite of anxious. Uh, avoidant. Avoidant. Yeah. So I've become more avoidant since I spent all that time alone. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, I really people at all. <laughs> I kind of swung to the other other side, I think. <laughs> yeah. 
but I feel, yeah, I feel the way you describe it, I can, I can even sense this like level of like self reassurance, like, um, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, typical of, of, of secure, of secure attachment, you know, like Mm -hmm. things are okay. You're okay. We're okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And we do have to find like what works for us. I've, I've just, you know, I'm almost 58 years old and I've just had a recent discovery that if I don't have sex with somebody, you know, early on in the relationship, if I just um, flirt and fool around a little and kiss and play, then I leave that experience feeling really full and appreciate them. And I can send them a a message. I don't Mm -hmm. sit there like in my, you know, feminine like oh how come they haven't called me you know i can i can call them or leave them a message and say that was really fun thank you for sharing that juicy energy i'm not needy i'm very giving but if i go all the way and have sex with them then i go into that like how come they haven't called me it's been a week you know (laughs) so i've I've learned i've learned that about myself like really recently (laughs) god how long did that take Mm -hmm. (laughs) so now i can go to parties and you know play parties and all kinds of things and just stop right before full-on sex and have a great time and not leave feeling empty at all. So the point is, is that we're always mm. learning about ourselves. No matter how old we are, we're always learning new things and figuring things out. It, it never ends. It's an ongoing life process. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's an ongoing process, too, because we're always changing, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us were the same person we were five, ten years ago. So that path mm-hmm. of self-knowledge and self-awareness is continuous. It's checking in. Mm-hmm. It's how do I feel now? How do I feel now? Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And like you said, when you first started and somebody said to you, you know, what do you want? You know, how do you feel? What do you want? And you're like, <laughs> what? I don't, I don't understand what language you're speaking right now. <laughs> so, yeah, we, yeah, we develop I mean, those I know- over time. I know some people say that polyamory is like the PhD of relationships. And while I don't necessarily agree with that assessment, I would say it does require, you know, a a knowledge base and a set of skills uh, that many people don't have and and which will require some conscious development, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So... Since you consider yourself a love coach and your whole life is committed to bringing unconditional love and connection to the world, <laughs> how would you define the word love? Uh, beautiful. Um, excellent question. Now, one of the most amazing things about love is it can be so many things. Um, one easy and quick definition that I go to is that love is a genuine concern for another uh, person's well-being. Mm-hmm. And I like this term because it opens up the possibility of loving more and more people. So if you care about somebody, then you love them. So you love your friends, you love your family, you love your partner. Of course, you love your kids. Like you want your kids, if you love your kids, you want them to be happy. You want them to be successful in life. You want them to not make the same mistakes that you did. So it can be a genuine concern for another person's well-being. And I think for a lot of people, the first time they realize that is the first time they fall in love 
in which case love becomes the first time you care more about somebody else than you do about yourself. And I say that to also emphasize sometimes love is like a paradox. Like, what do you mean it's loving somebody more than than yourself? Um, And it's just a genuine concern for another person's well-being. Because at different contexts in our lives, lives, love can take on different meanings. And when we bring love into our lives, we are changed and we are transformed. So I think a lot of us, we go through our lives very self-centered. You know, we spend 99.9% of our lives concerned about ourselves. Am I going to get enough sleep? Am I going to eat? Like, or what's, is this going to make me happy? And sort of, you know, we think about ourselves. And then that first feeling of falling in love is that first time, like, the, another person in this universe has become real. And the first time you care about somebody else more than yourself. And if we look at love in this way, then love becomes like a total dissolving of the ego. Mm. Um, where suddenly, you know, when you look into your child's eyes, when you look into your lover's eyes, suddenly, like, who you think you are totally dissolves away, and the only thing that is left is love. So, Mm. you know, a third definition of love, of which I could come up with many, but a third one is simply that love is who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we say namaste, like the love enlightened me honors the love enlightened you. Mm-hmm. And when we strip away our egos and we strip away all the superficialities um, and underneath it all, the fundamental nature of our being is that of love. Mm. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. So we're almost mm-hmm. out of time, but in the in the last few minutes, what are some of your best pearls of wisdom for people who might be having problems or struggles in their relationship right now? How, what can they do to improve things in the immediate future? Um, pearls of wisdom for those having troubles. First, I'll say you're not alone. Mm-hmm. So I know any time that we're suffering, um, we uh, our world becomes so small, you know, we get sick, you know, even we have a cold and we're, you know, woe is me. My life is terrible. I shouldn't be sick. I, I can't be sick. You know, I have to take care of, of, of everyone. And whatever problems we encounter in life are universal. Um, and whatever problems you're encountering in your relationship, other relationships, um, many other relationships are experiencing the exact same thing. And countless other relationships have experienced the same thing and gotten through it. So before your world crunches and this single problem uh, becomes a source of suffering for you, I encourage you to realize that that, uh, challenges, pain, problems in life are part of the human condition, that we all go through them, and and that you're not alone in whatever it is that you're going through. And um, the next thing that I'll say for anyone going through problems is what do you like about your partner? So studies show that partners in successful relationships deeply understand that their partner is a fundamentally good person and they're trying their best. Mm -hmm. So if you come home and, like, your partner slams the door, 
you don't think, wow, what an insensitive and rude person. Because nobody wants to be with an insensitive and rude person. And once you've like labeled a person in that way, then of course it's going to spell disaster for the relationship. But partners in successful relationships know that their partner is good. So if they come home and slam the door, we think, oh, wow, they must have had a really stressful day. And we mm-hmm. attribute uh, – you know, negative behaviors to external circumstances, stressful day, you know, tough life, they must be going through a lot. And when we know our partner is fundamentally good, then we'll always see the good in them. And what's important mm-hmm. in any relationship is gratitude, is appreciation, is, is um, you know, it's almost like a love hack, which is you, even if you're having the most complicated argument in your life, you could even say, you know what, you drive me crazy sometimes, but I love you. You know, mm-hmm. I'm so angry right now, but you're still, I'm still lucky to have you in my life. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. just like a joke is a beautiful way to dispel uh, an argument. And, um, you know, something, some couples relationship therapists recommend is literally like if you have a problem, wrap a tourniquet around it, take a five minute break come back and express a few uh, words of appreciation for your partner and realize Thank that you so much. I'll say one more thing is uh, one mantra I like is uh, our prob- our relationship important than the problem. Mm, beautiful. I'm going to have to stop you there because we're almost out of time and I want to make sure we have enough time for you to tell people how to reach you. So thank you so much for being on the show, Zach. You truly are a love expert, and I really enjoyed (laughs) hearing your thoughts about this. So um, we have a couple minutes for you to share with people um, how they can reach you if they'd like to know more about all your offerings. And I believe you also have a gift for our listeners. So take it away. You have about two minutes. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. I can't believe an hour has passed. It's been so quick. I know. Um, (laughs) So I like to say I'm very easily stockable. So my name is Zach Beach, Z-A-C-H-B-E-A-C-H, Beach, like Miami Beach, like you walk on a beach. So you can find me at ZachBeach.com, and you can find me at ZachBeachLove on um, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, So Google me. There's a contact form. I love hearing about whatever, the latest research or insight, you want to shoot me a line, just tell me about what's going on in your relationship. I'm more than happy to hear. And then for any listeners in the Bay Area, whether you're in Oakland or Emeryville or Berkeley or San Francisco, I encourage you to check out the Heart Center and come to Learn to Love on Monday. So about six days from now, Learn to Love, Sumati, along with three other speakers, including Kathy Labriola, the author of Love and Abundance and the Jealousy Workbook is going to be there. We're going to have four uh, amazing speakers presenting their best wisdom on love and open relationships throughout the lifetime. And you can use the code I love Sumati uh, for five dollars mm-hmm. off the ticket price. So, uh, so I love, and then you should know how to spell Sumati, but it's S-U-M-A-T-I. I love Sumati gives you five dollars off the purchase price. And of course, we always need volunteers for our events. So, if you want to come to any of our events for free, shoot me a line. I can give you something to do, and you can attend and learn from uh, some awesome wisdom holders about what it takes to have an awesome, amazing and thriving relationship beautiful thank you so much Zach we do have to go I really appreciate you being on the show and I have you back 
in a few months again because we have so much to talk about. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. So next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, we'll be speaking with Alieda Hines. Alieda. She's originally from South America. Now she lives in North Carolina, and she is a clinical sexologist. And she has an upcoming book called The Seven Secrets, Seven Sex Secrets. So please tune in next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time to learn what the seven sex secrets are. All right. Have a great evening, everybody. Take care.